Welcome, everybody. This is Fred Shankelberg, and welcome, <clears throat> excuse me, welcome to the Ascendo Reliability Webinar Program. And today we're going to talk about the, the intersection of reliability and safety. And, you know, and just before we got started, I was asking for ideas for future podcasts, and one of them was on risk management. And safety and risk um, have a, an overlap, but risk management is a much, much broader topic that intersects with reliability, safety, quality, and a whole pile of other things. Uh, but it goes from insurance companies to um, uh, market penetration to global events, as we all know, in the last couple of years, things like pandemics and, and warfare can really disrupt things. And that's a risk and a risk of an upside or a downside, depending on where you're at. So may I come back to those a little bit later. But today, I want to talk about this overlap and relationship between reliability and safety. So we'll dive into that here. Of course, if I can get my computer to behave. Um, oh, and I chose uh, uh, rock climbing images today, mostly because um, for years I did outdoor rock climbing, much like this photo here, and that kind of, of climbing with the rope and and safety gear and all other stuff. And you really put a lot of um, trust in the equipment you're using. And a couple of years ago, there was a famous movie of a, a climber that did El Capitan solo with no gear whatsoever, no safety uh, other than his own strength and skill uh, to go up this massive uh, mountain. And it wasn't a, a trivial climb either. It wasn't an easy climb. There was areas that were definitely challenging even for him as a, a pro climber. But the idea of climbing um, for me was, well, it's an enjoyable hobby. There's no doubt about it because it takes comp absolute complete focus and it uses strength and skill and balance and fo focus and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's really an, an enjoyable sport. Um, but I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have the ropes and the gear and the trust in those things. And so part of what we do in making products of any kind, whether it's climbing gear or a bicycle or an automobile or a, 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 a ship or anything, a phone, uh, we want to make it safe. And that's usually not even stated in, in the product description. We don't usually have a big long list of things saying it doesn't explode, it doesn't burn up, it doesn't do this or do that or the other thing. But if we find any of those issues, or as we're designing it, we tend to try to deliberately avoid uh, unsafe failures of all kinds. And so part of what we do, whether it's in reliability or, or as a mechanical, electrical, software engineer, or whoever, is to make it safe. And so those are, it's a common tenet throughout our ability to manage equipment or systems or processes. And now from a reliability perspective, we want it to work over time, right? So we know that the use environment changes, the uh, harshness of how it's treated is changing. You know, the first cell phones were coddled, the 
cell phones today are, are handed to toddlers. And it's a completely different environment than even 10 years ago for phones. Um, but we also want to make it safe over time. And, and that's an interesting dilemma for a lot of people. So we need to, to focus on that in that relationship a little bit. But the idea of the safety folks, the, in some organizations, they have a, a safety manager, for, for example, or maybe even a whole team. And oftentimes, they're trying to create a safe product with, from a safety perspective which to, to me is a subset of reliability because we want to make a safe product also, which is the subset of the, the, the project manager or the company CEO, whoever, is we pretty much all want the same result, is, is create a product that, that works as expected over time safely. And even though I put safety at the end of that, a safe product uh, over time and so on would be putting safety first. I ran into a company that actually made that distinction is they always use the word safe early in their, in their statements, but it was pretty rare. All right, so I got a quick question for you. Does, does the safety programs or activities, does that actually help reliability? Is that a, something that supports reliability? And, and the objectives of making a product work as intended over time. And the chat window is open. You can see a few bits of discussion in there as we set up. So does safety and safety activities help? What we do is reliability professionals create reliable products. All right, not seeing anything there. It's not meant to be a rhetorical question. There we go. Gives leverage for design, uh, driving design for reliability efforts, makes it worse due to increased controls and devices. All right, I think Mahindra and Brian, you both hit on the dichotomy here. You know, we're related and that's a, a piece of it. We're gonna talk about those in a couple other ones, but the, and, if you've been to one of my webinars before, you pretty much know that it's really driven by the culture of your organization. You know, what is it you're trying to accomplish and is it clear? And are you all working on the, to the same objectives? Um, then safety and reliability oftentimes really leverage each other and work well with each other uh, from two different disciplines, but also designed for manufacturing. and and risk management, reducing those, and all of the other illities that are involved with creating a product can work harmoniously, if I pronounce that right, if there's a common objective. But if safety has its own budget battles with the reliability team, with the quality team, with the product development team, with the labs, um, it may or may not be supportive. It may be each try to do their own thing. And it can get out of balance pretty quick. And I see that in plenty of organizations. All right, so let's talk about what I see as some of the problem. And I think this is more to your point, Brian, is that it, it can get in the way. Now, part of it, of the overall big picture problem, 
is that um, safety um, doesn't just hurt, hurt you in the marketplace. And it doesn't happen, you know, vast majority of products that are out in the marketplace are, are safe and, and state remain safe. And they are, when used appropriately, I mean, you could use pretty much anything as a weapon if you decided to throw it hard enough or drop it on somebody. But the, the idea is that some point, uh, at least in the US is that, and I know in, in other countries, we have processes that say, hey, this thing's dangerous. It's inherently dangerous. It's got a, uh, a faulty safety system, or it's got uh, uh, a choking hazard for consumer products for children, or it's got this or that or the other. And there's all kinds of rules and regulations about what crosses the line that says, no, this isn't safe. This should not be used on the market as is. And so uh, NHTSA pretty much covers vehicles, uh, cars and trucks and things like that. And I think to some extent, scooters and, and bicycles and stuff like that. Um, but it's, there's, there's recalls for vehicles. The famous one is the, um, uh, the airbag, uh, inflator, the little device that exploded and filled the uh, airbag full, uh, would go off all of a sudden un, and pretty much surprising somebody just happily driving down the freeway, um, which was a problem. And so um, I'm trying to blank on the name of that company, but that's one of the big ones. And those make the headlines. But if you go to that site, there's a, a vehicle recall almost every day. And you can put in your VIN number and see how many recalls are associated with your particular vehicle. Uh, CPSC is the consumer products. So they cover uh, strollers to uh, waterbeds. There was one I saw when I looked at this uh, uh, URL, the top one was a, and I don't know what they were thinking when they created this product. It was a, a wall mounted, uh, bed where, and I, there's some fancy name for it, where you can lift up the end of the bed and put it on the wall, into the wall, basically. And then when you're ready to use the bed, you pull it down. A Murphy bed. Yeah. But it was a water bed. So it's a Murphy bed filled with water. And if you can imagine um, a mattress size with a box spring full of water, it's got to be pretty heavy. And apparently, uh, the, when you start pulling it down, um, the, the restraints and shock absorbers or whatever they were using to control, to offset that weight failed and it would fall right on top of the person trying to pull it down and it killed somebody. So that was one that caught my eye right off the start. And, but from an engineering point of view, it was like, what were they thinking? Um, but anyway, and again, there's almost a product every single day uh, and more. In some days, there's dozens of them that were under a safety recall. Uh, FDA covers food and drugs, and it's just one after another after another. The list just goes on and on and on. And recalls is not a reason to fear designing a product. Although I did meet a consultant some years and years ago that said, and he was an expert witness in so many legal cases. And he was like, why does anybody even 
try to bring a product to market. But he was pretty biased because he was only dealing with the ones that were really bad failures. And but that's just the tip of the iceberg to use that cliche is that we spend billions and billions per year on warranty. And those might not be safety issues, but they're where the product doesn't work. And there's a fine line between something failing and being unsafe and failing and being safe in the cut in the view of the customer. And if they call you and say, Hey, we, it's not working. It, caught on fire, I guess the battery shorted out. You replace it or return it or give them their money back and they don't report it, it won't make one of these recall lists. Um, if they report it to the government or the government finds out about it, then it might. So it, in essence, there's thousands a year and it's not just the big newsmaker ones that wipe out companies and parts of industries is that a, a recalls do happen. And it's not so much that we'll take that risk and it's maybe one in a thousand times that we'll get hit by a recall. It's that it harms people, it harms people. And that's the issue is that we're not doing due diligence as a broad engineering community to make sure our products are safe. And so the emphasis on creating safe products comes from that we just don't want to hurt people. So the other part of the problem though, that I see is that the, there's a balance between how do I get a product out to market that's safe enough, that, that doesn't hurt you too much. It's kind of, I heard it argued that way one time. And if we meet all the regula regulatory requirements, if we're going to sell in North America, we meet the UL and CSA requirements and we can sell it through the retail stores, um, that's safe enough. Even though uh, we don't do any other due diligence to, to figure out if it's working or not. And, and I think that leads to the problem is that the regulations and standards tend to create this false sense of security that if we meet those requirements, we're safe. Well, that, that's not necessarily true. And I know many of you know this, is that it just because we meet some ANSI standard or, or uh, uh, IEEE standard or whatever standard, doesn't mean that it's good or that it'll be reliable or that it's safe. Now, there are some standards that are very specific. It has a, a part that's a certain diameter or size it's a choking hazard. So there's some that are very clear, it's either yes or no, but there's others that if that product drops on the floor and, and breaks into small parts, then those become choking hazards. But if you don't test for that or evaluate how your product behaves under stresses, um, it's a gray area. And some companies just don't bother doing the testing or evaluations or engineering re, uh, checks that look beyond what's required. And, and it's part of the safety world, but it's also, you see it in other engineering areas. If it's in, if it meets the code, then it's good. Well, that's not always true. And we all know that. Now, 
some of the requirements uh, are what what our competitors have already stumbled in in the in the past or what we've stumbled in the past um if you've bought a um well i bought a chainsaw a couple of years ago in the owner's manual for it which i was looking for well you know what i was looking for some part of um how the trigger mechanism worked because it wasn't working and i wanted to fix it and it was basically watch a youtube video and i learned how to fix it real quick because it was really simple it was a poorly engineered piece of equipment but when i got into the manual it was i don't know 75 pages long kind of eight and a half by 11 and a good 40 pages were warnings and cautions and as you can imagine with a chainsaw that could happen but it covered every precedent that you could think of I don't know what people were doing that ended up suing a company because they used their chainsaw by sitting on the outside of the branch and cut it off, or they, you know, were, and you've seen the, these, these warnings and, and so on. There were so many pages. There it was one of those typical too long, don't read kind of situations, but more importantly, the requirements are, it should just be safe. Now, as you know, uh, and I've said this a few times, many of our products have a fundamental thing where like a knife is inherently sharp so that it can do its job in the kitchen or wherever you're using a knife. But if you use it inappropriately or drop it or, or grab it in the wrong way or slip, it can cut you and, and that's a harm, but it's a trade-off because dull knives really are dangerous. Also, <laughs> you put a lot of excess of force on things and it's easier to slip or have accidents. But if it's sharp, you also have to do due care with it. And we use this argument in so many different situations that it's only used by trained personnel. It's only used by experts. It's only used by people that know what they're doing. And we can use that argument to justify that it's a sharp edge and it's okay. We're not expecting toddlers to use that. Whereas if we were creating a kitchen set for toddlers, we would not use a, a premier razor sharp, uh, scalpel sharp kind of cutting tools as part of that toy set. Uh, the point is, is that the expectations, as, as anybody's heard me talk about or, or read anything I've written about, about requirements for reliability, is that one of them is customer expectations and it constantly changes, right? What we consider only to be used by experts yesterday is now used by the, the home chef today. And it's used by teenagers in, in middle school in their cooking class or in a club. Uh, our expectations, in part because of familiarity with different products in different systems, continues to raise the expectations that it's safe in an ever-expanding use environment, use profiles in, in, in environmental situations. And so... Overall, it's a 
balance of is this product safe and safe enough for its given case? And is it our ability to count on our customers' common sense is led to, at least here in the United States, lots of court cases. And even when there's misuse. So part of our FMEAs and risk management and hazard analysis activities involve what happens if they don't use it appropriately? What happens if they're not trained? What happens if, you name it, as wild as we can get those things to go to consider all of the different ways that, and then what's the probability of those things? And it is exhaustive uh, it, when done well, uh, but also very illuminated, illuminating as to how we can make products safer. The problem is, is that it's near impossible to make a product absolutely, totally, perfectly safe for all circumstances. I don't think that's actually possible, but where do you draw that line? So the famous last words, right? I know what I'm doing, or, or is that's parallel to uh, here, hold my beer, watch this. The, in our factories and in product development, We've all seen this where the technician or the engineer gets in there and immediately opens up the case, duct tapes or, or bypasses or shorts out the safety cutoffs, um, doesn't obey lockout tag out type situations. Uh, they need to see it running. They need to have the system powered so that they can monitor and check and diagnose whatever they're doing. But the problem is, is that we're also getting overly confident in a dangerous circumstance. And there's lots and lots of procedures out there to help keep our team safe. It's when we routinely bypass them that it gets on that danger side. Now, I think it was uh, Mahindra mentioned that, or as uh, Brian mentioned this, is that adding um, trip switches or uh, uh, de-energizing panels or uh, all of the ground systems that are in electronics, um, uh, guardrails, uh, uh, all those different kinds of devices that we add to products to monitor temperature so we shut it down before it, it overheats the battery charging system. It adds complexity. And as, the, uh, as Boeing found out with the uh, uh, 737 MAX 8, I think it was, is they, made the fuselage longer, they added more powerful engines, which tended to put the airplane in an unsafe condition because it was so powerful, it would raise the nose way too quick and it would stall, kind of flip over backwards, which was not an intended activity. So they added a sensor that was to then override the controls to bring the nose back down. But unfortunately, that single point, that single sensor could fail. And now the safety system's getting false information and created an unsafe situation. This is at least the way I understand, and I'm quite sure I'm oversimplifying it. The idea is, is that as we add more and more safety systems, more and more checks and, and sensors and, and accommodation to the system, the 
safety systems become as or more complex than the actual system. Uh, a product I worked on with the team years and years ago um, used triple redundancy. And it was to monitor, say, like a, a chemical plant and say there's a pressure vessel. So they would use three different ways to measure pressure and temperatures and so on. Different technologies, different lines back to the sensor place, three different input output uh, banks, three different CPUs. And they used the voting method to make sure that when they sensed overpressure and in going into a dangerous realm, then they would take action. And they usually had very short amount of time to do it. So the 99.9 .9 plus percent of the CPU time was checking, is the system working? Because the cost of missing an eminent failure and not taking action to mitigate it was amazingly expensive. But likewise, shutting down a plant like a chemical plant, shutting down a plant when it was safe and made the mistake to shut it down inadvertently uh, is likewise very expensive. And so the vast majority of the safety system was just checking itself to make sure that when it had a chance to make a decision, it would make the right one. And their uh, system was constantly, constantly running self-tests. And if there was any anomaly, they would take that circuit board out and replace it. And so it was costing them a fortune just to maintain the system. Yet in the long run, if you can avoid a, a chemical explosion, uh, that's usually a pretty darn good thing. Well, I like the way you phrase that, Carl, is the outcomes of a purposeful action that are not intended or foreseen. It's, I like the way that's phrased. I'm gonna have to steal that. Uh, but anyway, our systems and the systems to make things safe um, continues to ratchet up, right? As we've made uh, vehicles that were little more than a, a, a buggy that used to be drawn by horses, as the speeds increased, it, we put a windshield on it or a windscreen, I think it was originally called. Um, later, these added better shock absorbers in, in order to make the ride more smooth and made it more complex, but it also made it safer for the passengers get, from getting jostled around at these higher speeds and so on and so on. Step by step by step, vehicles today are amazingly safe compared to what they were even 30, 40 years ago. And it's just continued to ratchet to be safer and safer and safer. Personally, I'm looking forward to autonomous vehicles. Because um, the data, at least I've been seeing over the last couple of years, shows that they're at, you take the driver out from the steering wheel and making those decisions, um, they're actually quite safe. Um, and I don't know that too many computers that just start texting versus watching whether the light's turning red or not. So I digress. So part of the issue with safety systems and safety in general is that it can be overly focused on just meet the regulations or the standards, or it could be that it adds too much complexity uh, in, a, in an attempt to make it perfectly safe, which is a, a diminishing return. It can be incredibly expensive to make a system perfectly safe. And same with reliability, we know 
just on the rules of probability is that we are unable to make a product that is perfectly reliable, always going to work. And, but we get close. And I think part of this continuous improvement idea and so on with safety applies equally well. Part of it is, is having a clear picture of where those balances are, where the trade-offs are. All right, this is a rhetorical question. How safe is safe enough? It depends on your industry and your application and the training of the people, your customers and how experienced they are and on and on and on. I don't know of anything that's terribly safe in the oil and gas industry because of the high pressure is the materials they're dealing with, the size of their equipment, uh, the forces involved. Yet of all the organizations I visited, they had a top of the shelf laser focus on safety. And I've, I know I've told this story before, but they, um, one of their surveys on on injuries to their employee, employees found that traffic accidents, um, not just on business travel, but on the commute traffic or even just on weekend driving was the leading cause of lost uh, of personnel being out of office, being uh, recuperating or in a hospital or, or whatever. And so they said, well, if we're really serious about safety, let's teach our people how to drive. And so they brought in all these different uh, driving and uh, training facility or uh, equipment or people and systems. And if you were going to rent a car, you had to go through a safe driving course, which was like three days. And otherwise you couldn't rent a car in, in your business traveling. So that's one way they enforced it, but they encouraged everybody to do it. And they markedly reduced the lost time in their facilities and their, from their employees because they had fewer auto accidents. And one of the things the driving safety people noted is that when you drive into a parking lot and you park nose in, it's quick, it's convenient, you're in there, but the, a very easy way to hurt somebody else or to have a fender better basically back into another vehicle is backing out of those spots. If you back into the parking spot, it's an order of magnitude safer. And you drive past the parking spot. It's a constrained space. You're going slow. Um, you back in. And then when you come back from shopping or doing whatever you're doing in the restaurant, and you, you can have a much better visibility to the area that has much more traffic of personnel or of pedestrians or of cars. And so you can see and avoid accidents much, much easier in both directions. And so back into your parking spots to drive safely or safer, I should say. All right, safety and reliability. Let's take a look at it, at this one. Safety is first. This, this oil and gas industry uh, company, um, it was definitely safe. It was just standard practice that when you first visited the site, you got a safety briefing. Um, and then any meeting, there was a couple minutes based on safety. So fire, egress, what's the alarm sounds mean? Um, any news like driver uh, safety programs are being reinforced or how's it going? It was always a sincere, as far as I could tell, it sure sounded sincere, uh, safety discussions, multiple times per day, every day. And 
it kept it top of mind. Now, from the reliability point of view, when we're working on a product and we're working on a design for reliability type thing, if it's going to affect yield in the factory, that has a certain amount of cost associated. We can figure that out. Or if we have a, an issue that affects time to market, that'll get some attention. But if we come back from the lab and saying, hey, if, if, if this gets vibrated, uh, like in transportation, it's gonna create these shorts and it's gonna um, discharge the battery completely. Now, that has enough energy to actually melt and possibly ignite your product. And that's a real case that I was involved in and found. Now that didn't have any discussion. It was just straight to how are we going to fix it? Let's understand the problem and fix it. Where if I came back and said, you know, if we uh, change a few things here, it'll improve the yield or it'll improve the longevity of the product or so on. There's almost always a lot more discussion about, well, what's the benefit of that? How do we balance that and so on? By and large, vast majority of teams I've ever worked with is that if it was a recognized safety issue, it caught on fire or it shattered into sharps, uh, sharp uh, uh, edges and things like that, or on and on and on, whatever the un unsafe condition was, there was very little discussion about how to avoid taking action on it, but how do we go about solving that? And you've seen it, uh, FMEAs. If it's a high ranking severity, we generally are taught and practice in my experience that if it's a, a top severity, if it has serious, serious severity, a nine or 10 on a 10 scale, then we have to address it to, some, to the best of our ability to reduce that risk, that re risk of a safety issue. And that's from a safety or quality or engineering point of view, or the types of activities we um, use to show that safety is important and that we're going to take care of it. We're going to minimize it as much as we can. Now, this really only works when it's, when it's actually part of the culture, part of the organization. If there's always an argument or we'll make it up later, or will nobody ever deal with it? That's a corner case. Um, then the culture starts to ignore those safety related type issues. Now, of course, there's a balance. You, can, you would never ship a product if you wanted to make it perfectly safe. But again, it's part of that culture is that you at least talk about it. You, where's the balance on this? What's, how do we understand it? What's the probability of it failing in a hazardous condition versus failing safe and so on. But if it's just swept under the rug or in an environment or a culture that says, no, we don't talk about those things. Well, then safety first is really just a slogan at that point, really not worth, worth mentioning. Yeah, and Brian, I agree with you is that there's uh, the, the uh, as safe as reasonably practical, practical, well, whatever that word is. The, and, and Carl's bringing up a definitions of it, but the, the, if that's not even on the table, if that's not even considered, well, then we, we're not really addressing safety issues. But we all face this in our different industries and our different circumstances. But my point is, is that if safety is important to the organization, it has to be more than just saying that. And um, 
what in defining locally, what does that really mean for you and your environment and your customers? And, and there's plenty of guidelines out there, but they all get fuzzy. And that's where it takes the leadership within an organization to say, no, this is what we mean. This is what we're going to do. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's the culture. And if the culture behaves in a way that pays attention to it, that it's not afraid to say, hey, this isn't working or this is unsafe. And then it gets its due discussion and evaluation and, and addressed in, in, a, in a way that makes sense, that actually uh, allows us to, to focus on it. As opposed to a culture that says, we don't talk about that stuff because that just causes problems. And so, which is true. Now, another part of safety and reliability is that if we have a, a safety feature, say a guardrail that rusts out at its base and somebody is unstable on a catwalk and hits that rail and it fails, well, that's a problem, right? So considering how products age is part of safety. Yet, Oftentimes what I see is safety works on just the like quality, just on getting the product out or installed or created or designed. It doesn't really tend, some industries are different than others, but most what I see in the safety standards and regulatory stuff that counts on having a lot of margin. You know, is it strong enough to, to withstand the force of say a large human is a three, 400 pounds getting unstable and hitting that railing uh, with, you know, from across the walkway or at a certain momentum. We try to build enough margin into our products so that they remain safe, safe for a variety of loads that are expected or even beyond expected. Whereas, that in reliability, we use that same technique to say, we're going to add a lot of margin in. So it withstands the effects of aging of wear. Whereas that's not always considered is because if something rusts quickly, or it has a poorly manufactured, it has manufacturing variability, well, then that becomes a real problem fairly quickly in some circumstances. Now, some of our failures, not all failures from a reliability point of view, do create hazards. You know, a short through a, a battery charging system can be a real problem, or a poorly made lithium ion battery is can be a real problem. But the 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 more insidious ones is where something meets the requirements, has plenty of margin, but then doesn't age well. It's on a platform that has a lot of vibration. And so we get uh, creep or we get uh, cracking. Uh, forming and now we lose the structure. So there's plenty of ways things can fail and not be safe, but there's also plenty of ways that we use techniques. The most common one is add margin or redundancy to things. Some of the techniques we use every day in reliability. Oh, here I got ahead of myself a little bit. One of my battles over the decades has been working with design teams to account for and address the aging. How does this chemical process uh, affect your product? How does this uh, 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 drift or how does this 
um, uh, uh, rust, or, or I'm thinking of all the various ways our products uh, experience and react to the stresses they see. And from an engineering point of view, if we want a 20 year product, we need to account for all these various subtle ongoing aging activities. But is it still safe? Is it still have enough margin at the end of that? And I don't see that very often in, in hazard analysis or in FMEAs or in engineering practices. So it's an area that engineer reliability has an issue with uh, how do we identify and address all of the aging type activities ago and maintain a good enough margin for the reliable performance of the product. Yet we often don't extend that slightly to include the safety one, unless it's a, a, a high severity failure. And, and some industries do it better than others, of course. All right, so another rhetorical question is, you should know this. When there's a question about do we invest in this to make it better or not from a safety point of view? Who's that person? Who's the one that sets that risk level? Who's the one that's going to sign off on it and or choose to invest in it? And it, it almost always comes down to a person. And they need, they need to know that they're the ones doing that and what the information on both sides of that decision are. So it, it's something to keep in mind is that you should know who that is and not just make it up yourself, unless you're the one that's on the hook for it, if it's not safe. All right, let's look at it from the other point of view, reliability and safety. I think I stole my own thunder here a little bit. Design for reliability, design for safety are, are types of activities that we use to create products, to create systems and bring them up. And we use a lot of the similar tools of, risk analysis and, and management. Um, and I'm noticing this climber's actually got his hand in the carabiner that's attached to the rock, which is not a good practice, um, mostly from safety point of view. So probably not the best image for this one. They're not designed to have your hand in it. And it's also kind of cheating when you're climbing, but anyway. In reliability, we know that, especially if we have a product that's going to last, say, five, 10 or more or longer, in many circumstances, it's difficult to measure because there's multiple ways that a product can fail. Unless we have a, a dominant, well-understood failure mechanism, we probably don't even have a model for it. And so product testing and modeling and, and evaluations and so on, especially when we have many competing failure mechanisms, is really difficult. Well, the same is true for safety. We have many different ways products can be either misused or degrade or, or have failures that lead to unsafe conditions. Part of that is the definition of what's unsafe is constantly evolving too. But the thing is, is that we have a lot of in, in we have a lot of similarities between the reliability focuses and safety focuses and a lot of the same tools that we're trying to do. And as I said, right off the top is we have the same objective is create a, a good product for a good solution for the customers. Another set of this is in, when we get to operations or the manufacturing facilities, 
the safety programs are usually to help them, the, the engineers and technicians and operators stay safe on the factory floor, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Yet, the as I learned early in my career, when you create more than one of anything, the only thing you can do is make it less reliable. You can make it worse. You can you add variability when you make more than one. And we all know that. But so SPC and process capability, as Chris talked about in the last couple of his webinars, is a great tool to help us improve the reliability, the consistency of our products that are built according to design as intended. Not controlling that just leads to scrap, more field failures, and so on, but it also leads to safety problems. And I rarely see product safety focusing in on the production process itself. And of course, it varies by industry, but the idea is, is that in reliability, we have to focus on the supply chain and the manufacturing process because so many different kinds of failure defects and anomalies and variation comes in that process that can lead to products not working at all or not working as inspected or not working very long. But it also includes things that can become unsafe in, in an unwanted way or, or too soon. So part of our role in working with the safety groups is bringing our expertise of manufacturing processes and process capability and supply chain management to expand their world and to focus on creating safe systems not only for our personnel that are creating our products, but for the products results that we're actually putting out. Creating a safe design is only part of the process. And then one more note here is the, the idea is that, um, and I've heard it phrased a number of different ways, critical to quality is where I first heard about it, is in the development process and in the design processes, we're looking for things that make a difference, that critical fuse, some of our colleagues would say, is what do we need to pay attention to out of the zillion different things that are out there that helps us to focus on where do we invest or monitor or make process improvements or design improvements so that we get a product that's reliable or that it's safe. Now, we're generally unable to address everything. And there's very few organizations in the world that even try. But the, the critical step is that we need to understand what are those things that are very clearly linked or increase the odds of unwanted act, uh, outcomes such that we can focus our ability to monitor and control and, and create margin and so on, whether it's design production or, or field use, to make it safer, to make it more reliable, to make it a, a product that works for our customers. When the stars align, we can find something that improves the safety of a product and improves the reliability of it. From my point of view, that's makes the argument for reference or resources to solve a particular engineering problem uh, much, much easier. If it's just safety, some organizations will invest appropriately to deal with that. If it's just reliability and we connect it to what's important to the organization, say reducing warranty, 
then that generally makes a solid argument. But when it's both, it's usually a win-win. And so in some organizations, the ability to focus in and nail down using the variety of sets of tools that we both employ um, helps us then to, to uh, zero in on the elements that need the most, most uh, care and due diligence to make sure that they work. So let's see. Now, not a rhetorical question at this time. If you add, uh, let's say, uh, uh, reduce the uh, chance of, of a safety issue with your product versus uh, reducing the chance of early failures of your product, which one adds more value? So what adds more value, focusing on safety or focusing on reliability? So maybe this is a rhetorical question because it's so variable depending on what industry you're in. And I'm going to catch up here with some of the chat stuff. Looks like a handful of links. Carl's been populating. There's all kinds of cool stuff out here. You know, and, and Brian, I've seen this uh, as safe as reasonably practicable. I think I pronounced it right there. Um, not just in Australia, but in many places. Um, what I have seen is that the liability in the US is, is different. It, well, let me use an analogy. When it, in, the, in the US, the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, if you've got a product that's going to, um, has electronics in it, basically, it has the potential to emit radiation to different radio frequencies or different frequencies that can, um, and are, are possible to interfere with other devices. And so if you got a monitoring system, but you're next to, a, 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 say, a, a pump, and that pump and its electronics are emitting uh, frequencies that interfere with that sensor, um, the U.S. calls that a bad thing. And so you have to maintain your, your emissions. You have to shield your device so that it dampens or eliminates the unwanted radiation emissions from it, the different frequencies that come off of it. And, and so in Europe, and I, I, I think this is still true, is the regulatory body said, well, you need to create a product that can withstand the emanated, the, the radiation that comes off of other products because it's going to happen. So you need to shield your product from the harmful effects of the radiation that's going to be present. And so they will blast it with all kinds of stuff. And if your product still works, it passes that regulation. Where in the US, uh, the EMI is tested by sensing how much it radiates. And there's a crowd off that says that's too much. And, and it's very difficult to identify exactly what's radiating in some products, as I personally know. preventing issues. And it's the same for reliability. If we can prevent the initiating events uh, or causes of failures, then that's usually more reliable. Same logic here, Brian, is that if we can prevent the issue, we can increase the safety um, or the circumstance and so on. If you run that argument out all the way for safety or reliability, you just don't create a product. 
because the most reliable product is one that's never used. Um, it doesn't exist um, in short. And the safest one is one that doesn't exist and not software. Software does exist and can cause problems as we know. So which can add more value? It really is gonna be local. What's important to your organization, what's your local culture and so on. When they're working together, then they both add a lot of value to an organization. If they're more bureaucratic uh, hurdles to jump over, then they add little to no value whatsoever. So that's the thought. So we're just engineering, trying to solve problems, but that's all I got on this one. And I have to, I'm gonna keep the, uh, uh, all these links, I'll, pro I'll add those to the, to the notes along with the webinar, see if I can add it all into there. Somebody's been busy online there, Carl. All kinds of good stuff there. All right. So any thoughts or questions? Uh, we've got a few minutes here or, um, and I'm also like I started just before we got online here is uh, looking for ideas, what you'd be interested in is you're, you're the audience. What would you like to hear about or discuss or consider uh, in future webinars? I have to get, take a look. I think I'm getting close to 200 webinars now in from Ascendo. So always looking for what's of interest uh, and more than willing to go back to other topics and dive deeper into them. No, thanks, Carl. And thanks for all your help with the links there. I'm going to, as I said, I'll keep those and add them to the notes um, when, when I get it up online for the recording. I think they'll be useful. Some of these I hadn't heard of before. I'll have to go check those out. You're welcome, Sebastian. Thanks for attending. All right. You're all very welcome, Mahindra, David. Thanks for showing up and participating today, appreciate that. All right, looks like it's fading off here. So I'm gonna go ahead and end the recording, but I'll stay online if there's any conversation you'd like to have.